Funding for Think is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. How did a guy from small-town Texas reported to be functionally illiterate come to control a vast empire of casino operations, and how did he eliminate those who stood in his way? The World Series of Poker traces its origins to Benny Binion, who moved from petty crime to racketeering to murder along the road to becoming one of the most powerful casino owners in Las Vegas, making countless friends and no small share of enemies along the way. He was a larger-than-life personality who invested not only in buying the loyalty of public officials and employees, but also in the maintenance of the mythology that surrounded his life story. Doug J. Swanson is investigative projects editor at the Dallas Morning News. He separates fact from fiction on Binion's life in his new biography, Blood Aces, the wild ride of Benny Binion from Texas Gangster, uh, the Texas Gangster, excuse me, who created Texas Poker. Doug, welcome to Think. Thank you, Chris. So uh, why did Benny Binion, who was obviously a brilliant human being for all of his flaws, um, why did he get so little education? He had a second-grade education and not a very good one because he was growing up in a very small town called Pilot Grove in Grayson County. He was sickly, as you said. He had pneumonia several times. His father, who was a uh, roving horse trader, said, well, I think he's going to die anyway, so I'm taking him with me. And he took him out on the road uh, to trade horses and learn that game. And that was the end of Benny's schooling, second grade. And he turned out to be remarkably good at gauging the value of a horse by looking inside its mouth. He did. Uh, He was exceptional at that. He also uh, learned how to uh, cheat the buyers and how to make a good deal. And uh, he learned how to uh, how to work the system at an early age. And he had it in his mind that farming was just a losing proposition regardless. That's what one of his uh, his uh, uncles told him. He said, see that farmer over there uh, with the uh, patched pants? Don't do that. And uh, Benny learned that lesson very early. Time to get out of town. Um, so he got into gambling early on, um, but notably, he never did wager a lot of his own money. I think Benny figured out pretty early he was not a good gambler, and he learned very early that it's the house that makes the money. He uh, went from horse, uh, trading horses to uh, traveling with roving gamblers all across Texas. They would show up at uh, what's called trade days at uh, county courthouses each month, and they'd go into the back alleys and run gambling games. Benny was uh, early on was a guy who got sent out to find the gamblers and bring them in. So he learned really early as he watched. He's a very savvy guy that to make the money, you run the game. How did he find his marks? What was he looking for? He was looking for a, a, a man with a certain hunger in his eye, he said. He would uh, not just look, look for someone who uh, maybe was bored, but for someone who had that certain spark and greed in his face. And uh, as I said, Benny was a very savvy guy, and he learned he couldn't read writing, he couldn't write, but he could read faces and he could read people uh, like a genius. Hmm. So he was still a teenager when he made his way to El Paso during Prohibition, and I think we can all imagine what it was that he was there to do. He was there uh, originally, it was said, to to, uh, run a a crew of uh, mules in a wagon, but I think, again, he figured out pretty fast how to make money, and he did that by smuggling uh, liquor across the river into El Paso. And what sort of place was El Paso back then? El Paso was crazy back then. It was a smuggler's paradise. Stuff coming across uh, the river from Mexico all the time, liquor, drugs. Uh, They would catch uh, people smuggling drugs inside corpses, uh, (laughs) inside uh, wooden legs. I mean, it was was the the, uh, smuggler's uh, mecca at the time. 
And I guess being in this wild, really violent place shaped him at a really critical moment in his development. That was his education. He said that later on. Uh, There's certain types of schooling, and I like the schooling I got. That was college for him. That was his master's degree and his doctorate was in smuggling and gambling. Hmm. And he began making enemies there. Well, of course. You know, if you have a, a dispute with another smuggler, you don't call Dr. Phil. You uh, you have a fight. And uh, Benny won his share of fights. Um. What kind of place was Dallas when he got here at 19? Well, Dallas uh, was uh, itself, uh, of course, under prohibition. And uh, it was uh, wild, as most towns were, that uh, uh, had people in need of some liquor that was uh, against the law. So Benny figured out pretty fast that that's a way to make some money, too. So he became a bootlegger in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And um, there were sources, I guess, nearby, not too far from town, that were producing the liquor. Right, down near Corsicana on the Trinity River Bottoms, a family called the Youngs. They supposedly had the best uh, moonshine around, meaning it didn't poison you or paralyze you. And Benny got in with them very early. And Benny was kind of a middleman. He was like the Benny Keith of his age. He he was a distributor. He brought the moonshine up to Dallas and uh, sold it to uh, the bars and the uh, the speakeasies. Moonshine was a dangerous, not only a dangerous business because you could get picked up by the cops, but drinking moonshine, as you alluded to, could be deadly. Yeah, because it had lead in it or lye, and uh, you know your system doesn't do too well when you drink things with lye in them. But as as I said, that was uh, that was one of the values of Benny's product. It was free of that, generally. How organized were his operations at that point? You said he was like Benny Keith. Did he have a lot of people working for him right away? He did, and he had a reputation early on as the main muscle in, uh, in the bootlegging business in Dallas. He was a man of force and will, according to the police. So um, gambling was never far from his aspirations. Can you talk about um, Diamond, Warren Diamond, who he was? Right. Well, Warren Diamond had a a gambling operation at the St. George Hotel in downtown Dallas. And Diamond was a patrician gambler. The uh, newspapers called him a sportsman, which was the euphemistic term. He had a very high-scale operation. And Benny parked cars and did errands. But Benny wanted to be Warren Diamond. Uh, And then Warren Diamond died of prostate cancer, actually killed himself when he had prostate cancer. And Benny wanted to take over the operation, but he couldn't quite do that because uh, he was already known as a violent man. He had killed a rival bootlegger. Uh, He was running a numbers system, uh, a lottery system illegally, and he killed a rival in that. So uh, it was a little difficult for Benny to climb the ladder at first because the the police who were... uh, working with the gamblers, didn't want Benny to take over. He was convicted early on of killing that fellow bootlegger, um, but because of the way, I guess, racial politics ran at the time, he essentially got off with a slap on the wrist. Yeah, the the bootlegger, the rival bootlegger, was black. And uh, back in that time, if you were Benny Binion bootlegger and you killed a black bootlegger and you owned the cops and you had friends in the DA's office, you didn't serve any time. Hmm. Um, he did do some work out of Deep Ellum, and um, if you were black and you were his paying customer, he couldn't be more accommodating, it sounds like. Right. That was his uh, what they called the policy game, and it was a lottery. You, you would send out your bag men with uh, the, um, the numbers, and, and a customer would, would pick lucky numbers and then take the numbers back to the headquarters. They would spin the wheel or throw them in a tumbler and pick the number out, and, uh, and then you might win or you might not. But most of the customers were black, and most of the operators were white. 
What exactly were the laws governing who could operate a gambling operation in Texas at the time? Really, the, the law was not that. And by law, I mean the police and the enforcement was very non-existent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you had friends. If you were Benny and you were the other operators, you had friends in the police department. You had friends at the courthouse. You had friends at the sheriff's office. And that's the way you operated. It was, it was a de facto legal operation. Um, so how did he cultivate those relationships? Was everybody, did everybody sort of come to him knowing, okay, I can get some money out of this, and so I'm going to approach this guy, or did he go after them? Both. He, uh, he either owned his rivals or he killed them, one or the other. He uh, was very generous with bribes around the courthouse, but Benny made friends. I mean, B- Benny was a garrulous guy. Uh, people loved Benny if they didn't fear him, sometimes both. But he, there are many people still around who are extremely loyal to Benny Binion. They, he, he captivated people. It seems that he could be, like, oddly kind to people in strange circumstances as well. There's a story in there about a young, uh, some dancers that um, he saw. Right. This was a casino called Tapa Hill out in Arlington, uh, and many had an interest in that. I spoke with a woman named Willetta Stellmacher who danced with the Texas Rockets, um, and she uh, remembers dancing out there one night uh, and uh, looking across the crowd and seeing uh, Bonnie and Clyde watching them dance. Uh, Benny was very generous with them. Uh, One night after uh, they finished dancing, uh, they were packing up, and Benny said, pay these girls right now because they need the money. And that's that's just the way Benny was. And, And 60 years later, 70 years later, 80 years later, people would remember that. I talked with Willetta Stellmacher in 2012, and... She still remembered how nice Benny Binion was to her. Hmm. Uh, that must have been an interesting experience to talk to her. She's unfortunately dead now, but she uh, she lived in a house over by Swiss Avenue full of pictures of her with uh, Ava Gardner and Guy Lombardo and people like that. Uh, she was a wonderful woman. You mentioned Bonnie and Clyde, and not surprisingly, Benny was a fan. Benny was, and there's a story that uh, when uh, when Clyde Parker was killed and they were burying him at the uh, Western Heights Cemetery at an, in uh, West Dallas, that Benny chartered a plane, had it fly in low, and uh, drop a burial wreath, a funeral wreath, onto Clyde's grave. All right, so um, you mentioned that he had an interest in Tapa Hill. He wanted to expand operations beyond Dallas and into Tarrant County. Um, how did he go about pursuing that? Well... Uh, he got a lucky break uh, because in 1936, there was the Texas Centennial, the big celebration in Fair Park. Benny had up to that point been unable to get a piece of the, the big gambling market in Dallas. And by that, I mean the dice games. That was the big money operation. The cops had blocked him because he was so violent. He had such a bad reputation. But the Centennial in Fair Park wasn't drawing the crowds that uh, the city fathers wanted. A lot of people were going to Fort Worth because... Uh, uh, the celebration in Fort Worth had a uh, an exhibit full of topless cowgirls uh, organized <laughs> by Sally Rand. Uh, so that was drawing the crowds. And the city fathers in Dallas said, what can we do? Well, what they did was they uh, looked the other way uh, when it came to gambling and prostitution. And that opened up gambling in the city. That gave Benny the entree that he needed. And he came in and started his organization and was off to the races after that. Hmm. And what sort of climate was it if you were to go out for a night um, here in North Texas to one of the places that Benny Binion controlled? 
well, if you like to gamble, it was great. Uh, if you could go to a place like the Southland Hotel, which was downtown on Main Street, uh, near where one main place is now. Uh, Benny had a place on the mezzanine there, uh, his part of his Southland syndicate. You'd go up, uh, knock on the door, just like in the movies. The little uh, s- uh, slot would open and someone would eyeball you. And if you were okay, they'd let you in and you could gamble all night long. You might see yourself, find yourself standing next to H.L. Hunt, Howard Hughes, people like that. Uh, the old movie star Don Amici would show up there and roll the craps all night long, according to Benny. So I was a mixture of uh, high rollers, low rollers, uh, hardcore gamblers, sightseers. Was he already experimenting with what later became a very big deal at his casinos and, and not limiting the amount that people could bet? Yeah, from the first. He was a high rolling kind of guy. If you came in and you wanted to place a big bet, uh, you were there in Benny's place and that was where you did it. Hmm. Um, and so obviously that caused people, I mean, that it, to me, that sounds like the worst thing in the world that you can possibly bet everything you own. But but for people who love this, this made him stand out, certainly locally. Sure. I mean, Benny's place was the place to be. And in part, that's because Benny controlled all the places in town. Even those he didn't own, he pulled a percentage of. That was That was the way he controlled the gambling business in Dallas. If you had a gambling spot, you paid Benny... 10, 15, 20, 25% of your proceeds. And of course, once again, he is making enemies left and right. Um, we're about to take a break here, but um, we'll talk in a minute about how he eliminated some, including one who seems almost impossible to have um, gotten rid of. Right. We're speaking with Doug J. Swanson. He's investigative projects editor at the Dallas Morning News and author of the new book, Blood Aces, The Wild Ride of Benny Binion, the Texas gangster who created Vegas poker. We'll resume the conversation in two minutes. Uh, you can join us at one 800 3353372 you can email think at kera.org or send me a tweet at chris boyd think Funding for THINK is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu slash CAPE. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Doug J. Swanson. He is investigative projects editor at the Dallas Morning News and author of the new book, Blood Aces, The Wild Ride of Benny Binion, the Texas gangster who created Vegas poker. You can join us by emailing think at KERA.org, by calling 1-800-933-5372, or by sending me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think. Okay, Doug, what was the source of Binion's rivalry with Herbert Noble? Herbert Noble was a gambler and a gambling den owner who came up in West Dallas. Uh, He owned the Airmen's Club on Live Oak Street in downtown Dallas. He paid Benny his percentage, but Benny upped the percentage one time to 25%. And Noble said, I'm not paying that. And that commenced a years-long feud between the two. 
So Benny wanted, ultimately decided he wanted Noble dead. He was not above doing his own killing at times, but he had henchmen by this point. I mean, this guy um, seems to have cheated death multiple times. It became almost cartoonish for a while, unless you were Herbert Noble, in which he became terrible. But they tried to shoot him. They tried to blow him up. They packed his airplane. He was a pilot. They packed the engine of his airplane with explosives. They shot him in front of his... Shot him in front of his house once in Oak Cliff. He went to Methodist Hospital to recuperate. A sniper stood in the courtyard outside Methodist Hospital and fired through his hospital window trying to kill Herbert. They put a car bomb under his or bomb under his car one day. Unfortunately, Herbert switched cars with his wife that morning, drove away in his wife's car. His wife came out to get in his car and it blew up and killed her. They tried everything they could try to kill him. It was the gang that couldn't shoot straight. And it was like the 10th or 11th or 12th time, finally, that, that it happened. The 12th time, uh, Herbert had a ranch out near Grapevine, now near Lake Grapevine now. Uh, and uh, they buried a bomb uh, near his mailbox. Herbert loved getting mail because all the publicity about the attempts on his life had engendered sort of a fan club uh, across the nation. People would write him and say, we love you, we're praying for you. And Herbert loved to get the mail every day. Well, he stopped to get the mail on this day in uh, the early 1950s, and they set off the landmine, blew him up. That was it for Herbert Noble. But not before Herbert plotted his own revenge on Benny Binion. Uh, Herbert, as I said, was a pilot. The police went out to his ranch one day to talk to him and uh, found him welding bomb racks to the bottom, to the wings of his airplane, he had a map in his pocket of uh, Benny Binion's house, and he had planned to uh, fly over Binion's house and drop napalm bombs on uh, Benny's family. So when Herbert Noble was finally dead via bomb, it yes. must have been clear to everybody who was behind this. What happened to Benny Binion? Well, at this point, Benny was thriving. Benny had moved to Las Vegas in 1946. He really got run out of Dallas. There was a new district attorney, Will Wilson. There was a new sheriff whom Benny hadn't bought, and uh, so Benny had to leave town. He packed up his Cadillac with uh, millions of dollars in the trunk, got two henchmen with Thompson submachine guns, and drove to Las Vegas and went into the casino business there. At the point Herbert Noble was killed, Benny was just starting the famous Horseshoe Casino in Las Vegas, 1949. And this was a time when people certainly knew that you could gamble in Las Vegas, but it was more a quickie divorce capital than anything. Right. Well, it wasn't much there. I mean, the, you may have seen the movie Bugsy. It wasn't quite that bad. But uh, there were a few casinos out on the Strip, and uh, there were some casinos downtown on Fremont Street. But these were very bare-bones affairs with sawdust floors and a bunch of cowboys and desert rats sitting around playing cards. So what was Benny's concept? Benny thought, well... Uh, Benny had a concept throughout his life that he learned at Top of Hill, which was uh, treat the little people like big people. Make everybody feel like they were a big person. He would send a Cadillac out to the airport to pick you up. He would comp meals. He would treat you like royalty, even if you were just a, a guy who swept floors back home. And uh, that's the way he treated everybody, and everybody loved him for it. And and I guess he was doing it not so much out of the kindness of his heart, but in that he knew that treating the little people like big people, they might you know, spend a year's pay sure. at his casinos. Well, yeah, he it was a business decision. But at the same time, Benny never forgot what it was like to be poor. He never forgot what it was like to be downtrodden. Remember, he came from a 
poor family with an alcoholic father, and I think he never forgot what it was like to be that way, and he had a real soft spot in his heart for the downtrodden. Was he a drinker? No, I mean, it was some. He liked to drink champagne sometimes, but he, he was not a drinker. He was not a womanizer. He was not a gambler. He just liked to run gambling houses, and he loved horses. He had a ranch up in Montana, a big ranch. He would go up there and, and, and run his herd up there. Uh, what was it like to work for Benny Binion? Uh, people loved him, unless they didn't, unless they were afraid <laughs> of him. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, people literally, and I mean literally, killed for Benny Binion. Uh, there was an occasion where uh, someone was caught cheating at the horseshoe, cheating at poker. You didn't cheat at the horseshoe. If you cheated at the horseshoe, they took you out back and beat you up very badly. In this case, they were hauling the guy out, probably to beat him up, and he kicked in a plate glass window and got away and ran down the sidewalk. The uh, horseshoe employees pursued him. He fell. One of them pulled a gun, shot him in the head, killed him there on Fremont Street in Las Vegas, walked away, never served a day in prison. But he killed that guy for Benny Binion. And to this day, is still loyal to Benny Binion. It's remarkable to me, um, you write in the book, that people who were known to be cheaters at other casinos were welcome at the horseshoe as long as they didn't cheat at the horseshoe. Yeah, you, the, the employees would go up to them and say, we know you cheat, we know uh, what you do, you can do that at other casinos, but don't do it here. And if they did do it there, they were taken out to the security shack, which was out back, and they had uh, the uh, the guards had a little umbrella stand back there where they put the canes that uh, people who used canes had left in the casino, and they stuck it in there, stuck them in there, and they would pull out these canes and they would beat the uh, cheating gamblers with these canes, then hose them down, throw them out in the parking lot, and say, "Don't come back." Did public officials in Las Vegas operate the same way they had in North Texas? Oh, I think even worse. I mean, it was such a small place and everybody was, everybody knew each other or was related to each other. There were public officials who worked at casinos. Uh, There were public officials who owned casinos. There were public officials who regulated casinos and owned casinos. It was very incestuous. Hmm. Um, So how did people start copying what Benny was doing? Well, I don't think you could copy what Benny was doing. Benny had a Benny had a, a, a business model that I think others believed wouldn't work, except it worked for Benny. And one of the reasons it worked for Benny was because he was Benny. He would sit, he didn't have an office. He would sit in the Horseshoe Restaurant at his favorite table, and people would come see him. He was a tourist attraction. I talked to one of his pit bosses who said, you know, I couldn't comp anybody to a show because we didn't have shows. They just wanted to see Benny. He was, he, he was an attraction. People would want to come up and shake his hand and talk to him about the old days, and he loved to talk to them. How did he keep his own dealers clean? Well, uh, he watched them really closely, and, and just as with customers, you didn't cheat the horseshoe. If you cheated the horseshoe, bad things happened to you. Um, what was his life like at home during these years? He had five children. Um, he was home for dinner almost every night. He was a devoted father, devoted family man. They lived on a spread outside Las Vegas on Bonanza Road with a big uh, open area where they could ride their horses. They had a pool. Uh, it was where all the kids liked to come. Uh, so he was a devoted family man who uh, had a couple of kids who turned out really well and a couple of kids who turned out uh, pretty poorly. One died of a drug overdose after a long career of, uh, not a career, a long life of breaking the law and, and, and 
using drugs. And another, his son, Ted Binion, was uh, notorious for his heroin addiction, his love of strippers, his love of the wildlife. He was uh, known as uh, just this raving genius uh, lout. And we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but there was a lot of um, infighting among the family members after he died about who would control sure. the, the casinos. Sure. They, they erupted in nasty lawsuits over who would control. Uh, they, they fought each other bitterly in court and ended up selling to a Harris, the big entertainment corporation. And that was the end of Benny's Horseshoe, but that uh, expanded the Horseshoe Empire. You can now find a horseshoe in Shreveport, for example. Doug, how did Benny Binion consciously brand himself and his his casinos? By being there. As I said, he was he was an attraction. He just would sit there and, and the place to be for lunchtime in Las Vegas was Benny's casino, was Benny's restaurant in the casino. Judges, uh, lawyers, politicians, cops, private detectives, tourists, everybody would show up to sit there and have lunch with uh, with Benny Benny. And I talked to Oscar Goodman, who was later the mayor of Las Vegas, but was a famous mob lawyer at the time. And he told me that that's where he wanted to be all the time, was over having lunch uh, with Benny at the, uh, at the Horseshoe. And sitting next to Benny was Harry Claiborne, his former personal lawyer, who later became a federal judge. Uh, and that's that was the center of power for uh, that part of Las Vegas. I have to tell you, I read this book and I really struggled between finding him very charming and then it was almost like like a Tony Soprano character, reminding myself that he was also a cold-blooded, ruthless, unrepentant killer. That's true. I wouldn't say he was unrepentant. He, I don't know that he felt bad about it. He didn't have bloodlust. I mean, if someone was killed, they were killed for a reason. It wasn't just that Benny thought, I need you dead. It was, you're in the way or you're causing me a problem. But like you, I came away sort of ambivalent. I I liked the guy at the end, despite what he did. I really came to regard him with some affection after spending so much time with uh, his life. How much money was flowing through this place at the height of its grandeur? Well, it's hard to know. Millions and millions. But the, the, the Binion accounting system was uh, take the money back into the counting room and pile it in a big pile. And when that pile gets too big, start another big pile. People told me they would walk back in the counting room and there would just be these giant stacks of bills everywhere falling all over each other. And uh, so it wasn't like uh, they had uh, the most reliable uh, accounting system in the world. That's just the way they did it. That was the family way. Some of it they would take out and bury in the desert. Silver. Ted Binion, the son, liked to bury tons and tons of silver out in the desert. Is any of it still out there? Well, that's a good question, I and mean, that's one of the reasons uh, they say that Ted was killed, that uh, his stripper girlfriend and her boyfriend were after the silver. So that's a good question. Is it still out there? I don't know. Hmm. So the IRS wasn't so crazy about the Binion family way of accounting for things? No, and the and the uh, the Bureau of Internal Revenue, as it was called then, was after Benny for a long time. It wasn't just uh, the Bureau. The Attorney General of the United States was after Benny. And it turns out, according to some memos I found, so was the president of the United States. President Truman was giving uh, the attorney general and uh, FBI director J. Edgar Hoover tips on how to prosecute and how to pursue Benny Binion. What did they finally take him down on? Took him down on tax evasion, sent him to Leavenworth for a few years. Um, And during that period, he lost everything. He had to give uh, control of the horseshoe away. The mob took it over. And when he finally got out of Leavenworth, he had really almost nothing. Um, 
we'll talk in a minute about how he rebuilt, but what were you able to learn about his experiences at Leavenworth? What was life like for him there, having been rich and powerful and in control of everything, and at least um, in large measure coming into a place where he had no autonomy at all? Right. I, I got really lucky. I got Benny's prison file from the Bureau of Prisons. It was 300 pages. None of it was redacted and had lots of detail in there, like, uh, well, Benny's IQ was measured at 89, which you might expect from someone with a second-grade education. Of course, he was a, he was a genius. He was an une- uneducated genius. He was missing four teeth when he came in. Uh, they took away his cowboy boots. He loved cowboy boots and made him uh, wear prison shoes, which he hated. And then he was made a, a, a maintenance man in the fire department. So you had this legendary crime boss who had controlled people for years and had millions of dollars. He was uh, running around sweeping up the prison fire department for a while. But again, he learned his way and he started learning how to co-op people and smuggle things in and uh, and make his way in prison just as he had everywhere else. So he gets out. Um, it, it would seem there's almost nothing left. What did he do? He sets about uh, taking the horseshoe over again. He has to buy off the mob. He has to mortgage some property. He has to mortgage his ranch in Montana. And he gets lucky in that the feds are starting to move in on the mob in Las Vegas. And so the mob is pulling back a little bit. And uh, Benny is able to buy back the horseshoe. Hmm. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Remember that you can also send email to think at org. Um, I was amazed to find out that he made these really significant charitable contributions. Um, these were not just little tiny gifts. He, he really had a, a philanthropic streak. He did. He liked to spread money around, sometimes it was because he was bribing people. Sometimes it was because he was trying to do good. Sometimes the motives were mixed. But Benny just liked giving money away. It, it drove his wife crazy because she was very frugal. And he would walk through the casino just giving away chips. He would comp meals all the time. And he just he liked giving money away. But he saw that as a good business practice. That's the way it worked for him. But he, he became a huge philanthropist in Las Vegas uh, and elsewhere. So... How does the city of Las Vegas feel about him? He's a legend. They love him. And Benny was one of the original founding fathers of modern Las Vegas. That's one of the things I talk about in this book. I don't think he gets credit for that. But he came to town just as modern Vegas was being born. And he helped put the city as a gambling mecca on the map. He's still appreciated for that very much there. And and you can walk around Vegas and find old timers who will tell you, that you can't understand Vegas unless you can understand unless you can understand Benny Binion, that Benny helped make Vegas. And remember that the horseshoe, that was that was where you went. If you were a high stakes gambler, you went to the horseshoe. Was his era the last in which you could be kind of this um sole proprietor rather than um a very corporate operation coming in and running one of these places? Yeah, it's pretty much corporate now, but you know, Benny's was a was a one-man shop. He ran it with his son, Jack, and his son, Ted. But there's, there's not much like that around anymore. It's, a, it's owned by corporations. It's, it's run by corporations. It's, uh, there's a corporate feel to it. Uh, it's just uh, completely different now. I don't know if he could exist now the way it is. Uh, but of his time, he was, uh, he was running it the way it should have been run. 
We're speaking this hour with Doug J. Swanson. He is investigative projects editor at the Dallas Morning News. He has a new book out called Blood Aces, The Wild Ride of Benny Binion, the Texas gangster who created Vegas poker. Welcome back to our conversation in a couple of minutes. We have lines open if you'd like to ask a question or maybe tell a story. Maybe you have been to the horseshoe years ago. Um, The number is 1-800-933-5372. You can also email think at kera.org or send me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for THINK is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu slash C-A-P-E. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with Doug J. Swanson, investigative projects editor at the Dallas Morning News and author of Blood Aces, The Wild Ride of Benny Binion, the Texas gangster who created Vegas poker. Join us at 1-800-933-5372 or email think at kera.org. Okay, what is the relationship between Benny Binion and the World Series of Poker and all these TV poker championships that happen now, what does he have to do with all that? He started the World Series of Poker uh, back in 1970. He uh, brought a handful of professional poker players to the horseshoe. They didn't even have a poker table at the time. They had to move some other equipment out of the way and uh, let these guys play. These were some of the biggest names in poker, but you have to remember then poker was illegal just about everywhere except in Nevada. He did it as a stunt, uh, just to bring in some people, maybe let them lose some money at the casino. Every year it grew a little bit, a little bit, a few more players, a little bit more money. TV networks started getting interested, like Wide World of Sports and CBS Sports Spectacular, and it grew and grew and grew to until it became this monster that you see today on ESPN. Do you think you would be unsurprised by how big it's gotten? Oh, I think he was surprised. He he, he said uh, when we when he was alive, he said he just never could have imagined it would have gotten this big. Hmm. That uh, he just hoped he would get to where he would have um, maybe a few dozen players play him, and now it's thousands of players. It's a big money deal. He was using it as a promotional tool. That's all. It is pretty astonishing that they're able to make something like poker into a spectator sport, if that's what you want to call it, spectator game. Well, it's. In the original version, it was a horrible spectator sport. I mean, you're sitting there watching these guys wearing bad polyester clothes with long sideburns, play cards, and poker, if you're not playing, is terribly boring, at least to most people, because most poker hands are folded, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, so it's like an early surrender. And so unless you were just vitally interested in the game— or unless you wanted to see these guys you've heard about all your life, Doyle Brunson and Amarillo Slim and people like that, 
it wasn't that exciting. Now you get to these TV shows where you can see what the whole card is mm-hmm. and you meet the players a little more and there's bigger money involved. So that's part of what's brought the growth about. And then there's online poker, which is uh, very, very popular. Let's go to the phones now, 1-800-933-5372. We have Harold on the line in Grand Prairie. Hi, Harold. Hey, guys. I've heard that there was a relationship between Benny Binion and Judge Sarah T. Hughes, and that was one of the reasons that Bobby Kennedy upheld her nomination as a federal judge, that uh, Bobby Kennedy didn't want, you know, Benny Binion cutting in on the Kennedy's operations of gambling. And also with Sheriff Bill Decker, with Bill Decker and Sarah T. Hughes, what was Benny Binion's relationship with those two people? Uh, before you answer, there's a wonderful picture of Bill Decker <laughs> in the book. Um, maybe you can tell us about that and then, and then answer Harold's question. Sure. Uh, well, I can probably do both, except I can't say much about Sarah T. Hughes. I was never able to run that down. Now, Bill Decker, uh, who was the uh, chief deputy in the sheriff's department and then later became sheriff, was a very close friend of Benny Binion's. And there is a picture in the book of... Uh, of uh, Decker and, and Benny together when uh, Benny was arrested at one point. Uh, they were extremely close friends uh, throughout uh, the years. Uh, and, you know, Decker had a reputation for knowing everyone, even uh, the people on the wrong side of the law. He could uh, say, I need to talk to so-and-so, and so-and-so would show up at his office. There was a point uh, at which uh, Herbert Noble, whom we were talking about earlier, had one of Benny's uh, henchmen killed. And uh, Decker went out to investigate it. But uh, before he went out to the crime scene, he uh, stopped at the Southland Hotel and picked up Benny, and they went out there together. That's a little weird if you think about it, the sheriff going out to investigate a murder and taking along uh, someone who might have been a party to it. But that's the way they worked back then. They were friends forever. Uh, Even after Decker died, when his widow would show up at the horseshoe, uh, they would roll out the red carpet for her and and, uh, comp her rooms, and she was treated like a celebrity because she was... Mrs. Bill Decker. How did Binion and his associates uh, play into the contract killing of federal judge John Woods? That was uh, allegedly uh, arranged at the horseshoe. Now, Benny, there's never been any evidence that Benny had a role in it. But uh, Jimmy Chagra, who was a gambler and a drug dealer, was going to be on trial in front of George uh, Judge Wood. Judge Wood was known as Maximum John for his tough sentencing. And uh, Chagra said, I wish I could uh, have something done about Judge Wood. He happened to meet on the floor of the uh, Horseshoe Casino, Charles Harrelson, a professional hitman. Uh, And then uh, briefly, uh, just a little while later, uh, Harrelson killed Judge Wood. And Harrelson, as many people may know, was the father of the actor Woody Harrelson. That's correct. 1-800-933-5372 is our number. We have John on the line now in Oak Cliff. Hey, John. Yes. Um, I, my question is, is there any connection between um, Mr. Binion and the old Red Devil Club out on Davis Street? Well, I'm not familiar with the Red Devil Club, but uh, it depends on what years you're talking about. As I said, Benny left town in 1946. Uh, if if it, the club was uh, operating in the uh, 30s and 40s, I'm sure Benny had some sort of role in it. Uh, he kept his fingers in a lot of pies around town. Let's go now to Doug in Fort Worth. Hi, Doug. Hi. A dear friend of mine began his career as a bartender in downtown Las Vegas, I think in the late 70s, and his father knew Benny from Montana. So Benny gave my friend Steve a job as a barback. So one day, uh, Steve had his arms full of bottles and other stuff, 
and he nudged a cooler door shut with his toe because he couldn't literally could not touch the door in any other way. And Benny spotted that. He was very observant and had a hot temper. And he came over and kicked Steve and said, you kick my cooler door. See how you like it. <laughs> well, um, I also heard that um, the police would come to Benny for sting money. They'd go to the cage and borrow whatever they needed and then return it to Binion. That you can tell that, us about. That is correct. If they needed some uh, some uh, cash to flash for a drug deal, they'd come and get it from the Binions. Uh, and you can look at that uh, one of two ways. Was this Benny's way of being a great citizen and helping out the police, or was this Benny's way of uh, making friends in the police department? Probably a little of both. That's the way he worked. I wonder if he would look the other way if things didn't quite total up after the cash was returned. Well, I don't know if the cash was lying in piles on the floor. (laughs) (laughs) If they had so much of it, they didn't have to count it. (laughs) I don't know. We have an email here from Mike who wants to know about the relationship between Benny and Billy Bob Barnett. I had lunch with Billy Bob Barnett, and Billy Bob loved Benny. Uh, Sometimes, uh, like people who love each other, the relationship got a little fractious, but... uh, I, Billy Bob, who, who started uh, the, the Billy Bobs in Fort Worth, uh, commissioned a statue of Benny on horseback uh, to put out in front of the club. Billy Bob, unfortunately, later went uh, broke, went belly up, and the statue ended up in Las Vegas. It was in downtown Las Vegas for a long time. And uh, recently it was uh, moved uh, to a casino south of Las Vegas. It's indoors now. Uh, and there's a plaque uh, beside it that says Benny was one of the founding fathers of Las Vegas, which is true. And uh, it's uh, they're out of the rain and away from the pigeons. And uh, Benny can see the casino floor from there, just like he could see the casino floor from his uh, table in the horseshoe. How did he get that nickname Cowboy, by the way? Uh, if you believe the story, I mean, he was a cowboy. He liked to ride horses. But when he had a uh, dispute with a rival bootlegger back in Dallas, uh, they were in, ba- in the back of one of Benny's houses on Pocahontas Street in South Dallas, and uh, they were having a very spirited uh, disagreement. Benny believed that the uh, bootlegger was going for a knife. Uh, so uh, Benny went for his weapon and drew his gun very fast, shot the bootlegger in the throat. And uh, because of his quick draw capabilities, uh, supposedly got the name Cowboy. We have an email here from Taylor in Oak Cliff who asks, How would you describe the legacy of corruption in Dallas how does this story um, compare with other scandals that you've seen during your time at the Dallas Morning News? I think, not having been there, but I believe that the Dallas of the 1930s and 1940s was a much wilder place than it is now and probably much more interesting. I'm not sure I can uh, gauge the level of corruption. Uh, someone asked me the other day what uh, what Benny would be doing now if he were back in Dallas, and I said he'd probably de- uh, be developing shopping malls out in the <laughs> suburbs. But uh I don't know. Was it more corrupt then? Uh, you know, certainly there was, uh, there was more interplay between the so-called criminals and the people who ran city government. There was a point where uh, the city brought in a criminologist, a noted criminologist, to study this problem. And he said, uh, you know, there's no way the police department can ever enforce gambling laws in the city. It's too tied in with the gamblers. You're going to have to bring in a special force to handle gambling in the city. So that's how corrupt it was. Is that what happened? Because, I mean, I, I suppose there's probably some gambling here and there, but it is not. this is not known as a town where there's a lot of, you know, underground games going on, right? 
I Am I wrong about that? I don't well, know. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, certainly there have been underground games and there's there's underground this and that. But I mean, this was in the open. That's the thing. It wasn't underground. It was it was out in the open where everyone could see it at, at big downtown hotels. And it was no secret. It was it was there. And the police and the and the other officials looked the other way because they were making money off of it. Benny paid, in effect, a tax. Benny and the other gamblers paid a tax to the city, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So the city needed these people. Um, so what does it take when you are trying to ascertain what is true and what is maybe just a false, incorrect recollection and what is pure malarkey when, when you have a figure as colorful as Benny Benjamin? Well, that's tough. And, and there are a lot of stories have been built up over the years. Uh, I, one of his relatives told me a story that Benny had congestive heart failure in later years and there was an experimental drug that they thought might help it. And they told me this story where uh, Benny was close to the country singer Merle Haggard. And allegedly, according to this story, Merle Haggard's road manager hired a Hell's Angel to break into a lab to steal some of this drug and then went to this doctor and pulled a gun on the doctor and made him give Benny this drug. Now, that's a great story, right? I'd put that in the book in a second. But I found the doctor. He's in Iowa now. And he said, no, no that didn't happen. I, I prescribed the drug for Benny. It was an experimental drug. He took it. It helped him out. <laughs> so, you know, there goes a great story down the drain. But that's that's a lot of what you get with someone like Benny and people who know Benny and, and the stories. I mean, he's such a character that the stories have grown up over the years. And a big part of what I faced was trying to weed out the the fancy from the fact. How long were you working on this while also holding down a very demanding day job? A couple of years and, uh, you know, weekends, vacations. Uh, we took vacations in Vegas, which my family will tell you they got a little tired of. You know? <laughs> hey, honey, we're going to Vegas. Oh, okay, great. Do you um, d- does knowing what you know about the origins of Las Vegas sort of change the way you approach it now? I love Las Vegas, but I'm not a gambler. I'm a terrible gambler. So I go and just look at the sights, and and I love going out in the desert and and uh, looking around, and then and I love walking around downtown Vegas, which is in a great transition right now, but used to be. Pretty seedy and shabby, and you know I liked that part a lot more than than the gaudiness of the strip. So you like the downtown area with all the yeah. lights and yeah, and the old grind joints and things like that. Yeah, it is an interesting place in America in that everybody knows Las Vegas is like a lot of glitter and and fake, tr- you know, untrue, um, artificial. Deity, I guess, and happiness, and yet people go there accepting that that's what they're going to get. Well, that's what they want, isn't it? I mean, why go to New York when you can go to Las Vegas and go to New York, New York? They're across, on the Strip. You know, this this facsimile. It's uh, it's a strange place. I mean, I love it, but uh, it's it's I find it really odd after a few days out there. Hmm. Um, is his ranch still in the family? Uh, no, the ranch was sold. Uh, his old homestead on uh, Bonanza Road in, in Las Vegas is still there. It's it's in ruins now, unfortunately. It's still in the, the hands of one of the family members, but it's been uh, torched by homeless people, and there's graffiti on it and all that, and all the trees have died. So it's a very sad sight out there. Any of the places where he had businesses still standing around uh, Dallas and Fort Worth? Well, the Top of Hill Casino is still there. It's now the Arlington Baptist College. Uh, it's you know gone from sin to uh, to religion, uh, and and uh, over the years, it's a wonderful place. You can go out there. There's a really nice lady named Vicky Bryant who will give you tours. She's got a little museum out there, and uh, you can see the tunnels where the uh, gamblers would escape whenever there was a police raid. Uh, 
the uh, the alarm would go out that the cops were on their way. The gamblers would run through the tunnels. The uh, the dealers would fold up the tables like Murphy beds and would be standing in the corner singing hymns when the <laughs> when the police rolled in. And I guess those aren't used in quite the same way anymore. Uh, apparently not. But, uh, <laughs> it's still an interesting place. You can see the courtyard where uh, the bands used to play. Uh, it's it's fascinating. Doug J. Swanson is investigative projects editor at the Dallas Morning News. His new book is called Blood Aces, The Wild Ride of Benny Binion, the Texas gangster who created Vegas poker. Doug, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for making time for us. Thank you, and I'll be at the Highland Park United Methodist Church tonight for a a speech and a reading and all that. It's free admission, 7 o'clock, if anyone wants to come by. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is assistant producer. We had Gus Contreras helping out as well today. Our executive producer is Jeff Whittington. You can find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think, and you can contact the show via email at think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.